Hello and welcome to Arcast, a podcast from the Royal College of Art, home to the next generation of creatives and the world's number one art and design university, representing the largest concentration of postgraduate artists and designers on the planet. We'll be bringing you insight into the philosophy behind the programs at the RCA by talking to staff, students and the wider RCA community about what we do here and how the work of architects, artists, communicators, designers and researchers affect the world at large. I'm Benji Jeffrey, and today I'll be talking to Tandy Lowenson about this year's Venice Biennale and education's place in the act of decolonizing. Tandy is an architectural designer and researcher who mobilizes design, fiction, and performance to stoke embers of emancipatory political thought and fires of collective action. And she's also senior tutor on our architecture MA here at the RCA. Andy, thank you for joining us today. Most welcome. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. It's very exciting to be here, yeah. discovering entirely new rooms of the RCA I didn't know about. <laughs> yeah, we are in our, so we have a sound studio here at the RCA, which is where we are recording today, which is a weirdly calm space. Yeah, it's great. In the bowels of, of one of our buildings. <laughs> um, so let's start off by uh, talking about the Venice Biennale. Can you tell us a bit about what happened this year? Yeah, I mean, I have to say it was... Um, being in Venice for the opening of the Biennale, this is not a flex, it's just a fact, <laughs> was a bit like being in JMU's. There were just so many people from the RCA right. there participating, part of events, part of um, exhibits, exhibiting their own work. And so it was quite, um, it was quite amazing, actually. And, and I joined the RCA about three years ago. Mm-hmm. And so it was this wonderful culmination of a few years of alumni, of people I've been teaching with over the last few years. And it was fantastic. It was really fantastic. And I believe there was something like 20 odd people from the RCA that were involved in the Biennale yeah. as well. Yeah, no, it was incredible. I, I didn't, you know, I would cautiously say it was almost unprecedented. I think the RCA was the largest institution represented there. And so, and very different kinds of people. So as I mentioned, alumni, people that are working and teaching at the RCA, people Mm. that are doing research here, but also alumni who've now become members of faculty. So this really nice um, intergenerational and kind of history in in the cohort of people that were there, which was great. Nice. And, And the theme this year was the laboratory of the future which was putting Africa in the spotlight as the laboratory of the future, right? Yes, yeah. And Leslie was also, uh, Leslie Locco, the the curator of the Uh Biennale, was also really interested in framing the Biennale around the two concurrent themes of decolonization and Mm decarbonisation. So what does it mean to fundamentally rebuild our world, our forms of relation between one another as people, but also between people and the earth towards more equitable and fair futures? The kinds of futures which, in the words of Eric Olin Wright, um, enable the fullest flourishing of us all, you know, for the many, not for the few, mm. which is which is ambitious, yeah. <laughs> which is which is grand, uh, which is really imaginative. And that's something that I, I want to talk about a bit more. But I guess maybe it's important to think a little bit about what does this mean for architecture? How does architecture fit within these kind of grander, larger ambitions and aims? Mm. And I think one thing that is important to recognise is that architecture has kind of really long been utilised within projects of colonialism, racial capitalism and carbon-based economies, quite literally to build a world and to build worldviews. So segregations between people built through walls and borders, land management and extractive practices, uh, the kinds of gendered labour and class relations these uses and kinds of expressions of space construct and and cement through Mm. their construction. 
Um, but also the materials which we use to build them and how we care, repair and tend to them uh, over time or don't. Um, and who does this work? And so to take decolonization and decarbonization seriously from an architectural perspective is to quite radically reconsider these fundamentals of architecture, right? Yeah. Um, and in the Biennale, Leslie Locke's curation inc- includes two really interesting sections, um, which, which I think are really interesting and kind of exemplify the sort of fearlessness that is needed to do this kind of brave work. Um, and they're titled The Guests from the Future and Dangerous Liaisons. And here, which is mostly in the Arsenale, is where you'll find practitioners who are operating at the fringes of um, of what has previously been called the discipline, what has been called architecture, right? So mm. um, works that engage architecture through performance, through sculpture, through film, through spoken word and more and more. And uh, this is dangerous work, as Leslie's title for this mm. section kind of calls our attention to which has especially younger practitioners in it. And I think it's dangerous work, especially for younger practitioners, to be kind of taking those risks. There's a quote from Sarah Ahmed that I really like, which is that once you point to the flaws within hegemonic ideas or dominant ideas of of doing and building the world, you yourself become the problem. Right. So to do this kind of work and to do it on a global scale, which many of these practitioners are doing, is incredibly brave and and um, brilliant work, actually. Mm. And so I'm very honoured and very proud to see so many of our students, so many of our research community and practice community doing this work and to be a part of them too. Yeah. And what does that look like? Thinking about performance, for example, yeah. how what does that uh, how do we engage with that in, in, in the Biennale in a way that starts to do that work? Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting question. So the Biennale looks very different to what architecture Biennales have looked like in the past, certainly the ones that I've been to. There are lots of dark rooms with films and screens and performances taking place within them. Um, The idea of how we might understand space and how space might be interrogated is also expanded fundamentally. So where you might have seen lots of models or drawings of buildings, you now see drawings and tapestries and um, more sculptural works um, alongside those buildings. There's a there's a project by one of our alumni, Lauren Lois Dewar, who is an alumni from ADS2, which is taught by Dele Adeyemo, Ibiye Camp and Damaso Randolfe and Dele and Ibiye also showing work in the Biennale. And her work is a woven tapestry that explores... Um, kind of global networks of fabrics and clothes recycling. So how secondhand clothes from largely from the West are dumped in the Ghanaian market and how they then become recycled, revalorized, particularly by young women who um, use them to create livelihoods, to navigate the city and open up their markets in really interesting and ingenious ways and kind of contest this idea of a wasted material, but also that mm. they themselves have been excluded from globalised um, international markets and uh, networks of material remediation and so on. So Lauren Lois's piece is this incredible tapestry that explores these spatial practices of these women, but also thinks very carefully about how her own material engagement through tapestry and through working with fabric can uh, have a quite close engagement to d- to do that work. 
Mm. Which is really interesting, I think, for an architecture student to be working very closely with fabrics and with tapestry making. And Lauren Lewis talks a lot about how she found herself in the workshops that deal with fabric at the RCA and was like, what am I doing? <laughs> right, right, right. But that's one of the, the, the amazing benefits of having an architecture school within an art school. Yeah. Um, because you get those kinds of quite radical encounters and see the kinds of fantastic work that, that produces too. Yeah. And how do these works that, that I suppose are kind of pr proposals in a, in a way for ways of thinking, yeah. uh, if we're going to be quite literal about what architecture is, how does this translate, um, how do you envisage that this could be translated into kind of producing the world that we want to see? <laughs> well, it's an interesting question. I mean, when I was studying architecture, Many, many, many years. Ago. <laughs> when I was studying architecture, there was a, a quite a sort of throwaway comment that really stuck with me from one of my tutors who said that architects don't make buildings, they make drawings of buildings. Right. They make designs of buildings. I'm not sure that's necessarily true. And I think certainly the work of, of many of my colleagues and of our students shows that architects are really engaged in the in the nuts and bolts, in the one-to-one -one of, of, of really building and making the world. And, mm. there, and there is a lot of that. And you certainly see that within the Biennale. Mm. But I think what's interesting about this Biennale and certainly Leslie's framing of this Biennale is to say that the world is made not just through construction and through, through the act of physically building, but also through the ideas and ideologies that underpin that work. Mm. And so part of that practice part of that work of building another world is also radically reconsidering what those ideas that underpin the buildings that we make and the, the spaces that we make yeah. um, are rooted in. Yeah. And to what extent do you think that that will be translated out into the world? You know, quite often these biennales can be little bubbles, you know, like little utopias. <laughs> do you see that that is extending beyond, beyond the biennale? It's an interesting question. I hope so. I think this biennale was particularly innovative, certainly within the world of architecture, in terms of the breadth of practitioners that it involved. Mm. You know, I taught for a while in South Africa. A lot of my work engages with Southern Africa, in Zimbabwe, Zambia, and so on. And it was remarkable how much of the continent was represented at this Biennale yeah. in a way that I've never seen before. And so these are people that are already doing this work in the yeah. world. And so I'd maybe flip the question a little bit, actually, and say it's it's perhaps more for the Biennale's bubble to start to see more what's going on in the world than, than vice versa. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Having said that, I think there's one of the coups that the Biennale has also done is to draw attention to this kind of work. Mm. You know, Biennale's are really important in terms of, in my opinion, in terms of giving platform to existing work and practices um, and practitioners, but also in terms of valorizing and legitimizing particular kinds of work and saying actually this is this is worthy of presentation at an international level mm. and so it also means that people that are interested in doing this kind of work or in asking these kinds of questions and and making these kinds of spatial provocations and political provocations are encouraged and supported to do that by seeing it be platformed at a scale such as this one mm. So it's hard to say exactly what the impact of it is yet, but these are some of the directions that I can see the impact of it could go. Yeah. I mean, it, it, yeah, it, it also really bolsters the work of people already doing this work, but yeah. who may not be getting the recognition that they, that they deserve. And talking of bolstering people's work, yeah. you were uh, 
uh, got a special mention in the category of the Golden Lion, which is very exciting. Congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> Could you tell us a bit about what your work was at the, at the Biennale? Yes, yeah. I mean, you know, and I was in really good company. <laughs> My colleague, Emilio Distretti, who is a research tutor in the MA Architecture Programme, was uh, part of the team that, that actually won the Golden Lion uh-huh. <laughs> for yeah. participants. Um, Yusuf Agbo Ola was um, exhibiting in the British Pavilion, which was which also received a special mention for the Golden Lion of National Pavilion participants. So it was it was a good day for the RCA. Yeah. <laughs> um, my work is a series of drawings and a film that is exhibited in the Central Pavilion, and it takes its title from a rocket that was launched from Kenya in 1970, uh, the Uhuru satellite which was the first satellite to to really image the universe in in quite a radically new way so it was the first x-ray astronomy satellite oh wow um through which we got evidence of black holes of um magellanic clouds of all sorts of you know quite seismic discoveries were made so the work looks at this series of drawings that was produced from that satellite from that moment um the task of drawing the universe no less mm. <laughs> Um, but it also looks, it sort of situates this moment within um, the independence that was happening in Kenya at the time and a kind of pushback, as I frame it, that was happening from former colonial powers in the UK, uh, Italy and the US. So it was a project between NASA and the Italian space agency or the Italian government. And through it, through this, we kind of see that while decolonization with its attendant liberations of uh, land, sexuality, uh, class, um, gender was happening on the ground through the mm. Kenyan independence project. There was this seeding of the air that was happening at the same time. So this maintenance of control of the air above the ground mm. uh, that has increasingly become more and more important today uh, with satellite technologies, um, which are used for extraction, for surveillance, for militaristic purposes, you know, space-based warfare and so on. So there's this the work kind of brings into the frame these these tensions where the land is won back, but then is seeded through this uh, occupation of the air and the increasing importance of the air. Mm. Um, so that's what the work was really looking at uh, wow. through that project. Yeah, Amazing. And is there much uh, thought within the architectural community about the potential colonization of space? <laughs> so just while you were talking about that, I was just thinking that that's the, the next frontier, I, I guess, of, of potential colonization. Yeah, well, I mean, as I hope the work shows, it's it's not necessarily an emergent frontier. It's long, right. it's almost long been, yeah, yeah, yeah. been one. Um, yes, I think this is something that is present within architectural discourse at the moment. Um, and one example that I could point to is Ibia Camp's work, Ibia, who I mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. on ADS, ADS2. So Abia's work looks at data, which she frames as a kind of new gold, um, particularly in Sierra Leone. And she looks at how the worlds of data are kind of in many ways, similarly to this discussion around colonization and carbon that we've been talking about. Yeah, The terms with which we engage with data are prescribed by those who control the technologies and who have disseminated and control the dissemination of those technologies and access to those technologies. Mm. So what happens when they encounter the African continent and they create new or emergent 
or exist or they continue existing forms of domination and control through these uh, spaces. Mm. So her work it really looks um, in quite an amazing way at how contestations might be built into those worlds. So she's working through glitch, through disruption, through subversion um, as as some of the tools of the architect within a digitally based space. Right. Okay. It's an just thinking about glitch. It's interesting to think about things such as glitch being taken in in those ways because, in a way, <laughs> they're things that have been uh, appropriated from DIY culture that are then being brought into to the. I don't know, don't know quite where I'm going with that, yeah. but they're just interesting things that start to become recurrent themes running running through these ideologies. Hundred percent, and I think it's really interesting. And you know, I, I have a collaborator and someone who I'm incredibly inspired by, Miriam Hilawi Abraham, who is an Ethiopian-based uh, designer. She talks about how often when we talk about Africa and technology in relation to Africa, mm. we're talking about hacking or um, kind of make do. And there's actually a lot of really interesting ideas around how those terms or those methods become subversions. Mm. But also that actually there's much more sophisticated work going on there right, right, within right. the work of the glitch. Yeah. Uh, there's, there's potential for really interesting subversions to be built in, but subversions that also create, that are generative of alternatives. And within those subversions, there are perhaps other kinds of worlds and other kinds of practices entirely yeah. that don't necessarily rely on contestation, but are also rooted in generation right yeah amazing so thinking back to the rca with, with, with some of these things how do these ideas start to get embedded at the rca and what other ideas are kind of coming to the fore in the programs here yes absolutely so you know i made a, a kind of joke earlier about how being at the biennale was a bit like being in jmu's um just for context, Jay Muse is the the lovely little um cobbled street we have outside rca kensington where everyone meets yeah <laughs> <laughs> Um, but I think that it was uh, it was quite amazing. The thing that struck me about there being so many RCA practitioners there was um, was that it was a real moment of recognition of how seriously people are taking these ideas and are taking mm. the kind of call to radical reinvention of the practice uh, of the discipline of architecture within our community. Um, in really rigorous and serious ways and the level to which this is happening. So frankly, I think this is quite sick. <laughs> um, and I, you know, our community is quite serious about not accepting the cards we've been dealt and instead being a part of rethinking this practice, how architecture should be done, with whom, by whom. And this is across all our programs, really. So you find it in MA Architecture through a host of ADS studios that are tackling climate and coloniality through a range of different and varied perspectives. Mm. So students can really come at it from many different angles. And what does ADS stand for again? Yes, Architectural Design Studio. Architectural Design Thank Studios. You, Just sorry. double checking. <laughs> The RCA is made of acronyms. RCA <laughs> is even one of them. Yeah. Uh, we see this in interior design, for example, where interior life and futures are kind of brought into the frame of scrutiny in environmental architecture and city design where extraction, land use and existing and emergent frontiers of expulsion and expropriation are really being critically engaged uh, alongside communities in some of the most acute contexts of the worlds in which this is being felt. And also in the MRES and the PhD too. Mm. We've also recently launched a new MArch uh, in design practice. So it's a new master's, which really speaks quite closely to the themes of the Biennale, which I'd like to talk about a bit too. Yeah. So it's a one-year programme that takes climate as a central focus 
and through which students will consider how reuse, materials, waste and embodied carbon intersect with economics, politics and identity to kind of really critically engage how design supports this just transition towards um, fair and flourishing worlds. So through the programme, students will really be exposed to a host of ideas, um, uh, to different tools and methods of coming at climate and its and its relationships with architecture in a number of ways. And then through a final research project in the third term, start to make their own claims and propositions around how just transition can be realised too. Mm. And within that programme, there will be capacity to, to collaborate and work with people on different programmes as well, which I guess starts to bring down the boundaries of what could be considered architecture in the way that you were talking about someone working with textiles, maybe not feeling like it should be, well, not not feeling that it should be, but feeling like they were out of their, their pond <laughs> in doing so. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think, uh, you know, this is part of a suite of really exciting programmes where an enormous chunk of um, the programme is dedicated to uh, elective units which can be taken across any school in the college so you know an architecture student will be studying alongside someone from the school of design from the school of communication and I think what's really interesting for me is that they'll then be coming back to the school of architecture within the third term and really quite seriously thinking about what does that exposure mean what has that done mm. to their practice um, but also really excitingly for us is we're we're within the school of architecture going to be teaching students from all parts of the college too so it's yeah. uh it's an exciting time. Definitely. And I think it really ties into this idea of like uh, architecture as an exhibitable act, which is just something I've been thinking about while you've been talking about the Venice Biennale and particularly as we've just got RCA 2023 going on at the moment. So we have our online platform with all the students in interior design. You know, they have these kind of spe speculative futures, right, where they mm. imagine that there's just one work I can think of, which is uh, by someone called Lucy Nuremberg, which is this speculative dyke rescue service. Amazing. So it's it's this incredible idea of querying the future <laughs> of what, what uh, a kind of car rescue operation might look like. And I guess that's something that starts to come through within these MRCH, right? They kind of have a, a more speculative take, or maybe I'm... Mis misunderstanding that? No, I mean, I think, um, listen, I think <laughs> one of the things that I find brilliant about, about the Biennale, sorry, to, to loop it all back together, no, of <laughs> is we're looking at, we're looking at issues of coloniality and carbonisation. Mm. And there is a timeline in which you can say that these issues are rooted in practices that were begun even perhaps in or before the 1400s with the advent of the transatlantic slave trade, yeah. settler colonialism, and a form of building and fueling the world um, that is associated with particular kinds of social, class, gendered, sexuality-based, ableist-based discriminations, right, that are really mm. quite deeply embedded within our practices and our ideas of um, of what the world is and how it's made. Mm. And so the task of contesting over 500 years of dominant worldview is an enormous one. And that means taking two things quite seriously, which is really rigorously undoing a lot of the, and unbuilding a lot mm. of the um, practices that we've inherited, that we've, we've been dealt, the cards we've been dealt. Also, you know, really seriously taking 
the imaginative project seriously. Totally. <laughs> right? How yeah. do we, if we've inherited over 500 years of thinking, there is an Im- imaginative project on the scale of which is absolutely enormous that requires these kinds of speculative propositions mm. that very radically reimagine what our society looks like when you take sexuality seriously and yeah. uh, a broader kind of spectrum of sexuality really seriously and how that remakes the world. Yeah. Um, and also think about its intersections, as this project does, with class, with production, with labor, with um, race. And so, um, yeah, it's very exciting to see this kind of work happening. Yeah. And it is entirely appropriate for the scale of challenges that we have ahead of us. Yeah. And I guess it's a bit like a rubber band as well, right? You know, if you speculate on something yeah. and have this big, wild speculation, when you pull the rubber band back, even if there's one tiny bit of that that is like materially doable <laughs> in the current moment, it, it, it's doing something wonderful. Totally. But I think the thing that really inspires me about our students and the and our colleagues here at the RCA is that there isn't a sense that we have to wait for that rubber band to snap back. Right, right, right. We can, we can and should be demanding yeah, its fullest extent. Yeah. And actually really seriously looking at how do we how do we build that? How do we get there? And that's what yeah. the MArch is doing. So it has one unit, the Just Transition Unit, which asks students to speculate, uh, to stretch that rubber band to its fullest extent, uh-huh. and then to think about what kinds of work we need to do now in order to realise that vision. Yeah. And that's something that I see across all of the programmes within our school, which is really exciting, that refusal to accept even the smallest compromise. <laughs> right. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, you know, this is a this is an existential conversation, really. Mm-hmm. So we I don't think we have the luxury anymore of accepting piecemeal change. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's so important and it's so difficult, isn't it, to kind of... Well, maybe it's just my brain that finds it <laughs> difficult and scary to imagine from a... From the the beginning of the tweaking of the rubber band, how much change can happen? Uh, yeah, no, I think you're right. I think it is scary, and that's yeah. why I, that's why I often use the term brave because I think you yeah. have to be really, you have to take a leap yeah. actually and stand by it and put in the work of standing by it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, this is coming from a kind of music point of view, but I know that you know David Bowie and Bjork always talk about the idea that, or, or did always talk about. The idea that there should always be a little bit of fear yeah. in what you're doing. Not like an overwhelming, like deep anxiety, but just a little bit of fear <laughs> in, in, in what you're doing that keeps you going, right? Absolutely. And I mean, look, I'd hope that at the RCA, we are we are giving people a scaffold with which to feel safe to uh-huh. take those risks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> We're also showing them that there is a community around them that can support them and that believes similarly in the in the necessity and the need for that kind of braveness and imagination. Um, and I think that's what I love about the the Biennale is that it shows on a global scale. Everyone can look at it and say, "This is at Venice. Come yeah. on, like this is what we need to be doing." Yeah, for so. sure. And are there any student works or or other alumni projects of note that you that you could tell us about that are uh, doing some of this good work? <laughs> um, yes, absolutely. So, okay, there are just honestly too many to mention. <laughs> I wish I could call on them all. They're they're fantastic. And thank you for pointing to the online platform RCA 2023. Mm-hmm. A kind of happy consequence of the pandemic was that these online platforms started to be made. So there is also an archive of mm. them. And I would encourage everyone to dive into them. I think as well, sorry to, to interrupt, but yeah. I think as well, there's such, particularly for someone who is not from an architectural background, 
I find them so useful to look at. It's obviously wonderful seeing the exhibitions, but being able to have like the whole process of someone's thought kind of running through their profile is just so like illuminating. It's fantastic. It's really, it's a a brilliant platform. (laughs) (laughs) Look, I'm going to name just two. Okay. Uh, the one I've already mentioned, Lauren Lois Dewar, who who looks at this practice of secondhand clothes and the eco- global economies around it, which are fantastic. That's also hosted on the Venice Biennale website. Um, I also want to draw attention to Falasade Oconribido's work titled The Blue Hour. Mm-hmm. This is just an exceptionally beautiful project, which started to be developed during Falasade's MA architecture work, her final mm-hmm. year work. She was part of the first cohort that graduated during the pandemic. So we did our kind of last crits and awards ceremony. And I hope for last day won't mind me saying that (laughs) she was awarded the Dean's Prize for the kind of exemplary project of the year. And there was honestly not a dry eye on the Zoom screen. Oh, wow. (laughs) Um, So the work explores the structural properties of colour producing proposals for an emerging community of young creatives in Nigeria to kind of remake community spaces, but also open up new horizons for themselves and for their futures too, which transcend uh, the imposed restrictions of class, gender and sexuality and more. Mm. Um, It's an exceptionally beautiful piece of architecture, but underlying it is also this quite radically reconstructed ideology that underpins how architecture should be built by whom and to what end and so I think it's a great project for exemplifying a lot of what we've just been talking about Mm. in terms of how a built project responds to this kind of call for ideological change Mm. so they're not at the Biennale but I also want to draw attention to two new groups Um, one is DIS a disability-led research collective which has been set up by Jordan Whitewood-Neal and James Zatka-Hass who also worked in the School of Architecture and DAN, which is the Deaf Architects Network, mm. which was set up by an alumni, Chris Lang. And they're both doing really amazing work to rethink disability, so not as a stage of com- of compliance or the kind of apologetic aftermath of a project. You know, you go around and check that everything works or that, you know, a wheelchair can move through a space. It's But rather looking at how centering the lens of disability expands our worlds of design in really inspiring ways. And I think what's quite interesting about both of them as well is that they're doing this practice through um, bringing people together, through collectivizing, through unionizing, and through hosting events and publications and workshops that kind of start to start to um, create spaces for architects and spatial practitioners to look to, to be strengthened by, to be galvanized by, but also these centers to kind of entirely rethink the, the discipline too. Yeah, amazing. Mm. The Deaf Architects Network, you say. Wow. Right, yeah. I, I'm from, um, both my parents are deaf. Okay. <laughs> but I've never really thought about architecture in terms of the sound of, is, is that how they're kind of approaching it? Is it to do specifically with sound of space or just to do with uh, supporting deaf arch- you know, what's their kind of angle on it? Yeah, it's um, it's a bit of both. And Chris Lang's graduation project was also fascinating. So he was designing a kind of headquarters for, I don't know if he called it the Deaf Architects Network at the time, but okay. it was uh, it was an institution like this and uh-huh. it was on the South Bank. And so there were lots of strategies and methods that he used in the design that would support a deaf community to be able to navigate the space, that the space would perform for them and and enable them to communicate, to host events, to Mm. be supported um, in the best way possible. So often that was through drawing on other senses, through sight, but also through thinking about how 
this project might become emblematic, you know, so it was sited on the South Bank. It might become a space from which to be seen and to activate um, a community from and a new way of thinking from. Chris Lang is also, so Chris worked with uh, interpreters throughout his study. Uh He's since developed with another collaborator, a kind of lexicon of BSL Uh that supports discussions around architectural design through BSL. Because I think one thing that he found was a limitation with with the terms that he was understanding conversations between his tutors and um, his interpreter and then himself. And so there was a kind of limitation around around the lexicon, right? And so he's developed this this new series of terms through which uh, education can happen, but also discussions within the studio can happen, discussions between clients. And... um, it's really groundbreaking work, I think. You know, in one of her curatorial statements, Leslie Locko talks about how the discourse around architecture has been dominated by a particular worldview. Mm-hmm. It's as if it's been spoken with one tongue. Mm. And so part of the work of decolonization and decarbonization is also to think about new languages with which we speak about architecture, with which mm. we communicate architecture. And necessarily that leads to new forms of architecture too, right? As mm. Chris Lang's project shows. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Spatial formations, um, material use, an understanding of how a building presents itself will be completely different once you yeah. start to expand those those languages and, and terms with which architecture is spoken into being. Yeah. And I guess who who is invited to do the translation? Isn't every every little element of it, right? Like <laughs> considering that whole thing. And just touching on uh, going back a little bit, you were talking about made by whom, uh, and most of the things you talked about have kind of been on a, on a on a local level, right? Or at least have had a particular locality. How important is that to architecture in particular to think more on a local scale rather than trying to do something global? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I guess part of the part of the work of architecture is to is to engage with sight mm-hmm. and to engage with materiality. So where something is and what it's being made of. And then by extension, who is who is there, who is doing the making and yeah. what are the dynamics of relation that exist there. Mm-hmm. And so how does your work engage mm. that? But I'm just trying to think, you know, a project or the work of someone like a BA camp whose sight is essentially data. Yeah, right? We're talking about something quite intangible there. Or indeed in in my own work where I'm thinking about systems of control or surveillance um, that are made through space-based technologies. I suppose part of the reason why these projects maybe sometimes touch down on sites is so that you can understand both the global scale or the planetary scale of the problem Mm. in relation to the frictions that it produces um, in in life, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that these frictions are highly contextual, that they depend on the dynamics that are existing in place. So, you know, and part of that is also because the expressions of coloniality, of racial capitalism, of um, carbon are different, right? Yeah. Depending on where you are. So there is a need to do the the broader scale work alongside the specificity of work and also that they're reliant on one another, that we start to understand one more through its expression on a a local scale too. I think they're both important because I'm probably going to paraphrase Dave Webster slightly wrong, but on the last podcast, I kind of asked him about local and global with with design. And uh, the interesting, well, what I found interesting in what he said was that um, you you have to focus on the local, but realize that you can't just scale up the local Mm. (laughs) and assume that it will fit every type of global situation. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that's, you know, one thing that 
is present, I would say, throughout all of our programs is emblematic of or reflective of this thinking is that we really encourage students to bring their own passions, to bring their own worlds, to bring their own knowledge systems from where they're coming from, um, whether that be a part of the world or a position of sexuality or um, ableist experience of space um, mm. to their to their research and to their practice because students are not blank canvases. Mm. Students come into the RCA with an enormous wealth of knowledge and experience and that is only to enrich their studies and their experiences here. Uh, and we, in turn, are also enormously enriched by that too. Yeah, of course. Great. Going to have to start wrapping things up now. But before we go, do you have any advice for anyone that wants to engage with these sorts of topics? Any, I mean, obviously they should all go to the Venice Biennale, of course. But <laughs> aside from that? Look, this is another one of those enormous questions. That, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes, get to the Venice Biennale if you can. Uh it's expensive to go to Venice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, tragically, it's not. It's just simply not possible for a lot of people to get to Venice. Yeah. Leslie draw, drew our attention in the first few days of the Venice Biennale about how the Italian government had not given visas to five members of her research team based in Accra. She was accused of bringing unnecessary young men to Italy. Wow. So, you know, which shows how live and how... Um, current the questions of coloniality of border making um are present within our world something that will be no surprise to i'm sure many people listening to this podcast mm. and so they've done an incredible job of listing all of the participants on their websites and so go and look them up go on their instagrams find mm -hmm. out about them and travel it travel it digitally if you can, if you cannot go physically but in terms of what what would i say you know what what should you look to or there's one, um, there's one book that's kind of disquieted my mind a lot since it came out towards the end of last year, which is a book by Salvage, the Salvage Collective. Mm -hmm. It's very skinny. It's almost a pamphlet. Uh, and it's titled The Tragedy of the Worker. And I think it kind of skewers our current condition incredibly incisively. It shows how carbon capitalism and coloniality are embedded with this, within social and economic structures. And importantly, how our collective imaginations must be larger than the worldviews that we inherit, you know. The book unflinchingly shows the scale of this work and the tragedy of the limits of our collective unionised work against the forces that seek to destroy and contain us. But it's necessary and inspiring reading for those of us who need to be brave enough, who need to be imaginative enough and militant enough to build these entirely new worlds. Um, and that is all of us, really, um, or there won't be an us to speak of at all. Amazing. Wow. Thank you, Tandy. You've been listening to Arcast, the Royal College of Art podcast, home to the next generation of artists, innovators and entrepreneurs and the world's number one art and design university. You can learn more about our programmes at rca.ac.uk, as well as finding news and events related to the college and our application portal if you're a prospective student. <laughs> <laughs>